Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though you are a, a God who is spirit and though you work in our lives spiritually in incredible ways, we thank you also that you express your love to us in physical ways also. We thank you for all the things that we need to, to live in this world that you provide for us. We thank you for the food that we eat, the families that love us and care for us. We thank you for every blessing we receive from you. And we pray that you'll help us, not just in this offering that we bring, but in every way and in every part of our lives, to be good stewards of all the gifts you give. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought what I would do during the, the summer, these, during the summer, I mean, it was the summer a wee while ago, but anyway, I thought I would... Um, do a short, just a short evening series just for three or four weeks. So I'm going to have a little look at some of the key events in the life of Elijah. So we're going to read from 1 Kings chapter 16 and from verse 29. <clears throat> we read that in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 21 years. Asa, Ahab, sorry, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his first son, Abiram, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segal, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Thank God for his word. And pray that he'll give us understanding. Understanding of what that word means, understanding of how to apply that to our lives. Let's just come and pray. <clears throat> Father, we come and we ask that that you will open this word up for us, that you'll just make it clear to us and you'll make it just so obvious what you're saying to us. Lord, speak into the hearts of your people gathered here. You know each one of us, you know our needs, you know the challenges that we're facing. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I, I want to look with you at the story of a disaster how appropriate you might want to say 
living through it as we are, what many see as the disaster of, of Brexit and all that's going on around that. And living as we are at a time that, that many would also see as a moral and spiritual disaster period in our nation's history. And at a time when the disaster that so many people are, are making of their lives individually is just so obvious. Disasters caused by drink, drugs, promiscuity, immorality, and all its varying shades and forms. But some of us might even tragically be thinking right now, you know, just how appropriate to look at the story of a disaster when my own life, personally, is such a spiritual disaster. When my spiritual life seems to be falling apart all around me, if not already in absolute spiritual ruin. Well, tonight we are going to look at the story of a disaster. But not simply to record the event, to tell the story, but rather to trace the steps that lead us into disaster, to show us something of the results of disaster, but most important of all, to show us the way out of disaster. And I pray that this will be of help to any who feel in, in any way that, that this is where they are in their life at this moment. But I also pray that what we're going to look at tonight will also sound a word of warning. To those of us here who perhaps, though not yet at the stage of disaster, yet in ourselves we sense that we are beginning to walk into trying and difficult times. Maybe you're aware of that. Maybe you're not. Maybe even we're at the stage in our lives of trying to close our eyes to the truth that we know and the truth that's beginning to eat away within us. I don't know precisely where each person here is tonight, but all I ask of you is that as we work our way through what is a tragic story, that you ask yourself the question, is this me? In some way, is this me? Is this experience, this kind of behavior, in some way parallel in my life? Because I believe that if you allow the word that we're going to look at tonight to bring that kind of challenge to you, that God will do his work in you. And that because of that, this will be a worthwhile time spent together. So let's look then at the story of a disaster, beginning with the road to disaster. And the first thing I, I believe we should know about this road is that it, it begins with compromise. Now, to explain that, just let me tell you first just a little bit about the, the situation into which uh, Elijah makes such a dramatic entrance in, in 1 Kings 17.1. Well, 1 Kings 16.29 tells us that Ahab had just become king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the fact that's particularly significant about Ahab that makes him such a, a central figure in this story of disaster that places him really at the very source of the beginnings of compromise is the fact of his marriage. Now this kind of linkage between marriage and disaster could lead to all kinds of jokes that I would never indulge in. Let me assure you that the marriage of Ahab was no joke, at least not in the eyes of God, and not as things progressed in the eyes of the people of Israel either. For you see, Ahab married Jezebel. Now, I believe we get a 
pretty clear indication about just what kind of person Jezebel was. When we remember that her name is still used now and again in popular speech, even today. Have you ever had anybody called a, a Jezebel? Maybe not so much now, but it's sometimes used as a joke still. But its roots, actually, are an accusation of immorality, an accusation of somebody living in falsehood. For Jezebel is seen as the symbol of those kind of qualities. But what's especially important about Jezebel and her relationship to Ahab is that she was a, a princess of Tyre, and that was one of the countries that neighboured Israel. Now, as such, she was, of course, a foreigner, and she was not a believer in the one true great God of the Hebrews. In fact, to the contrary, Jezebel was a follower of Baal. Baal, the, the God who'd been worshipped in the land that the people of Israel possessed before they themselves moved into it. So you see, as Ahab married Jezebel, this foreign princess of a religion different to his own, then he, the king, humanly speaking, the head of the people of Israel, the people of God, he had chosen to break one of the fundamental laws that God had given his people when they came into the land. Deuteronomy 7 verse 3. Do not intermarry with them. Do not take their sons, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And the Lord warned, for example, in Exodus 34, 16, what the results of this would be if they chose to do it. When he said, when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and their daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. But you know, you can almost imagine, can't you, how Ahab perhaps tried to justify his compromise here. You can, you can imagine it because Christians are still trying to do exactly the same today. You know, the kind of thing, you know, we as a nation were immature then. This book was written centuries ago and, and people didn't have the strength at that time. They weren't settled. They couldn't cope and hold things together under the pressure of, of mixed marriages such as this. But now you see, now things are different. Now as a people, we've grown up, we're stable and mature. And so we can take in these kind of relationships into the people of God. We can take in now those of other nationalities, other faiths. And, you know, from now on, it wouldn't be them. It wouldn't be us, the people of God, that would be changed. It would be the others. And, of course, he had probably said, anyway, my wee Jezebel, she's just so special. She's wonderful. There's no doubt that she'll change that she'll come to see the truth of our God, that she'll come to trust him and know him. Now, it seems to me, if not these thoughts precisely, then thoughts along this line must in all probability have passed through the, the mind of Ahab. This is the way things he hoped and prayed would turn out. Let's look at what actually happened. Well, Jezebel 
brought with her from Tyre, not only her diary, not only the traditional present that a bride then would bring from her family to her husband's family, no, but she also brought with her hundreds of priests of Baal, priests of her own religion. And very soon after arriving in Israel, she began setting up altars to Baal in the palace and even in the temple of the living God. And so almost before you would realize it, she has made worship of Baal, worship of this false god, overwhelmingly popular in Israel. But you see, what's actually happened here, I believe, was that Ahab's compromise that led to Jezebel's influence, that this actually brought to light a compromise that had been going on underground secretly for generations. Because if you read through the historical books of the Old Testament, you soon find that many of the people of Israel already, in a, in a superstitious, secretive kind of way, already they worship Baal. You see, in a sense, they were trying to make sure that no matter what went on, no matter what God was working, that they were covered. They were given their main worship, yes, to their own God, but they wanted to make sure that Baal knew that they remembered him. Baal knew that they acknowledged him, just in case this foreign God really did have power. But what matters is that they were not at this point giving God their total wholehearted devotion. And so you see, compromise builds on compromise. And so finally and suddenly, although for those involved, I'm sure it happened for them so slowly that nobody noticed it was actually going on. Suddenly, God, the true God, is moved into the background and Baal, this false God, takes his place. You see, I'm sure if they'd been faced up to it, <clears throat> no one would have wanted to take the blame here. Each would have tried to, to blame the other. But the truth, the reality is that both the king and his people, with their differing compromises, urged on by the queen and her priests of Baal, each bears a sizable share of responsibility and blame. But things don't even stop here. With Baal in the foreground and the God of Israel reduced to a supporting role, not even this is enough to please Jezebel and her priests. For you see, it would seem that, as was the normal practice at this time, that, that they began teaching, really indoctrinating the young of Israel, realizing, of course, that the future of the nation lay with the young. And so they began telling them that although the God of Israel was indeed a great God, though he was a God, yes, that had brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt, yet he was the God of history. He was the God of their past. He was no longer a God who was really relevant to their life in the present. But Baal, though, we see Baal was the, the God of the land before they came. He was the God who gave life and fertility. That's what he was all about. He was the God who filled their barns with crops, who filled their cradles with young. He was the God who ruled the weather and ruled the seasons. Very much 
the God of the present, as opposed to their old God of the past. I want to ask you, could anything be any more up to date than this? Baal basically being the God of materialism, being seen as the God of the present. Materialism to be worshipped, whereas the God of the Bible is seen as outdated, irrelevant, the God of the past. This is exactly what we see happening in our own day. For our world, and particularly the young, I don't know, maybe, but all of us, are bowing down to worship. And you can call him Baal, you can call him whatever you want. We are bowing down to worship at the God of materialism. And the priests of Baal today are the media figures, scientists, and sometimes even the so-called theologians who try in one way or another, whatever way they can, to undermine God and to consign him to the dustbin of history. Anyway, it would seem that the young of Israel and the not so young, that they listened more and more to this message. And they liked its emphasis on the practical, the material, the sensible, on the things that were immediately pleasing. All of this, you see, appealed to them. And so the grip of Jezebel on her priests and her God and the heart and soul of the nation of Israel slowly tightened. You see, their first compromise had given that first finger hole. And that was enough. Well, for a time, the worship of Israel's God still continued, but more out of a a mixture of tradition and sentimentality than anything else, a form of religion, but without any real power. And then, exactly the right time, when the resistance of the people was at its very lowest, then, with all the cunning given to her by her satanic master, then Jezebel struck. And the order goes out. Any priest of the one true God who tries to resist Baal is to be put to death. And you can read about this in 1 Kings and the results of this in 1 Kings 18 verse 4. You see, all pretense of trying to amalgamate the religion of Israel and Baal is finished. It's over. Well, we're a good way down now, that road to disaster, that road that began with compromise. We're going to now have a look and see where this road ends, and that is with the people forsaking their God. Now, the reason I say this is because in the main, at least at first, it seems that there was no real resistance to Jezebel. No one spoke up, no one stood up, even when she threw the covers off her deception even when she let the people see what she was really all about, even then, there was no resistance. Why? Well, it seems to me that this must have been because the vast majority of people were happy with the way things were. They may have had a few qualms about, about some of the things that were going on, but you see, on the whole in Israel at that time, things at least measured on a material scale were good. And people were contented. Baal seemed to be doing his job because they would now have much closer links with the other Baal-worshipping countries around them. Trade would be good. Bread would be plentiful. Wine would be flowing freely. Things were going too well for them to think of 
of making any kind of fuss and risk upsetting this apple cart. So you see then, this people, from that initial point of compromise, have reached the stage of almost absolute spiritual death. Spiritual things no longer really matter to them anymore. No matter how God is insulted, no matter how he's undermined or ignored, they're not prepared to lift a finger or say a word in his defense. They've opted for the material, practical God of Baal. And things seem to be going well. They've got plenty. And that's all they care about. But you might be thinking, you know, surely throughout this he's been a little bit hard on the people. For surely... Not so many of them would leave the true God for this false God. Well, I'm sorry, but the evidence is actually on my side, at least measured by God's standards. For in 1 Kings 19.18, when God's talking about the refining of Israel to only those that are pure are left, there the Lord says, Yet I reserve 7,000, 7,000 out of all the hundreds of thousands of the people of Israel. All those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. But then what about that, that minority? What about this minority who are told did not bow down to Baal? Well, you know, although they did remain faithful to God in that sense, they didn't go to that extent. Yeah, I actually believe there is another way in which they did all but forsake him. In the sense that although they maybe remained doggedly faithful to God and went through the motions of faithfulness, yet in reality, I believe they really had begun to doubt in him. Now, I believe that's more than hinted at by just how passive they are in their resistance to Jezebel. They maybe didn't give in to her, but they really didn't try to do anything to stop her either. They didn't stand up or speak out. You see, they were holding on maybe, but it was by virtue of determination only. And their faith was not vibrant. It was not living. I believe they began to wonder if their God really was a living God. And if he was, why was he so apparently calm and unconcerned? Why was he doing nothing about these attacks on his own honour and on his people? Well, that's us drawn towards the end of this road, this road to disaster, the road that began with the people's compromise and that now ends with them in one way or another forsaking their God. But I'm happy to say it's not quite the end of the story. No, because at the end of this road, and its suddenness really acted almost as a kind of, of crash barrier. At the end of this road, the people finally are met by judgment. A judgment that we're now just going to look for a minute or two at. It's a judgment that comes, though, through Elijah. We can't ignore him. Elijah, God's man for the moment. A man who bursts on to the pages of Scripture here, unheralded and unknown. A man who, as we'll see over the next few weeks, has a character of courage and determination and action. A man who's equipped to remind the people of something of their God and something of the great prophets of God of the past, like Moses and Samuel. 
Yet you know, great man that he is, and he is a great man, Elijah is not in himself up to the task that lies before him. And we'll see that. But he's one who is to find that in his weakness as he turns to God, that his God is able to give him all the grace and strength he needs to fulfill the task he's been given him. And what an example he is for us. Anyway, the judgment that he brings begins really with the revelation of God. That's where it all starts. Great place to start. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Now these are simple words. And yet what a glorious truth they communicate. And what an impact they must have had. Certainly on their original hearers. For Ahab and the vast majority of the people. Who'd been living as if God were dead. They must have been terrified as this word came to them. And the minority who maybe had remained to an extent faithful and yet had begun to doubt, they must have been, to some degree, reassured that their God, who they'd feared was dead, who was acting from their perspective as if he was dead, their God lives. But next... The final element in this judgment must have knocked both groups basically just about flat on their backs. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my command. Because here was spelled out for them clearly and starkly what was to be the result of God's judgment, what was to be the result of their compromise. Barrenness. As simple as that, barrenness. That this land that for a few years had been lush and fruitful with their sin was now to become dry and barren. You see, God had held back his judgment because of his patience and love, giving them the opportunity for repentance. They, though, you see, they had mistaken God's love for softness. They'd mistaken his patience for inability to act or even non-existent. But now, though, he acts and judges, and he does so in a way that leaves them with no room to underestimate his power and no opportunity to misunderstand the depth of his hatred of sin. There are two things, though, that I'd like to take particular note of about this judgment. First of all, it's appropriateness. For you see... The king, Ahab, and his people, they'd flocked to Baal because Baal seemed to be the practical God, the material God, because he'd seemed to be the God who could guarantee good weather and bumper harvest. Well, now, the living God, who by this judgment will bring about famine and for some death, now he shows that the prosperity And the joy, the fulfillment that the false gods of these worlds sometimes bring. He shows that this is always short term. Is always vulnerable. Can always be shaken or even destroyed in an instant. And he shows also that this is always held within the all-powerful grasp of God. Because he is the master of this world's master. 
And it is only God. It is only the true God who can give to us a peace and a joy and a prosperity that is spiritual and eternal. That is held safely in the hands of a Father who loves us, a Father who has got all power and who will never allow what he has given to be taken from us. The other additional thing to note about this judgment, I believe, is its extent. Because notice, it's not only the compromisers, those who actively compromised, who come under judgment. No, it's also those who to a degree maybe remain faithful to God and yet who remained silently standing by, who said nothing when the worst of this sin was being committed. So you see, I believe what this tells us is that those who by their silence condone sin are actually as guilty in God's eyes as those who commit it. And that's a warning to us all. Well, let's just wind up tonight by <clears throat> doing what I hope you've been doing throughout, uh, and that is bringing the challenge that's in this passage right home to our own lives, to our own hearts. Now, we could do this in all sorts of different ways. For instance, looking at the way that religious pluralism, the idea that all religions are equally valid expressions of man's search for God and are equally valid expressions in a sense of knowing God and worshipping God, that Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age religions, Islam, all religions, including Christianity, are all fundamentally the same. Different ways of getting to the same destination. Now, this is now mainstream, politically correct in our country. But this certainly isn't the orthodox Christian view. Because Christianity is by nature a distinctive religion. Acts 4.12 makes that absolutely clear. It says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Now you see, our inclusive, politically correct society absolutely hates this kind of exclusiveness. And for now, they're tolerating it. But my question is, for how much longer, for how much longer will we be able to freely share biblical truth, what God's word says? And when this becomes unacceptable, what are we going to do? Are we going to compromise? Or are we going to maybe stand silent when the world takes away Christian freedoms? Or, are we going to trust God and take a stand in faith for the glory of his name? But bringing this down to the even more personal and individual level, are you maybe right now at the point of compromise in your Christian life? Are you listening to the false God of this world who is Satan himself? Are you maybe listening as he tries to tell you that the Christian faith as it stands in the Bible is no longer wholly relevant 
That it's okay to cut corners, to tone things down in order to be practical and sensible, in order to fit into the society we are now a part of. Is the false god of this world trying to slowly and subtly win you away from the loyalty that you have to the Lord by the promise of popularity and happiness and plenty as this world understands? And you see, he tells you that giving way in little things doesn't really matter. Just give way. And so you give way once and perhaps it doesn't seem to matter. Your world doesn't fall apart around your shoulders, but then you keep on giving way to like the people of Israel. You eventually find you're at that place where you have forsaken God. That like them, You've lost that relationship with him that made your life special. You've lost that distinctive quality of life that made people realize you are different. And before you know where you are, your life is barren, spiritually barren. Because like the people of Israel here, you have come under the judgment of God. And so the joy and peace that once you knew are gone. And all you feel inside is deadness, emptiness. I ask, if you're down this road, how far down this road are you? Maybe you've just begun to compromise. Maybe you've gone further down the road. Maybe you're at that point now where your life is just one big compromise. Well, let me tell you tonight that wherever you are, there is a way to get things back right to where they once were and where they should be between you and the Lord. And it is the way of repentance. It's about tonight acknowledging where you are and turning back to God from your sin. It's tonight saying that you're going to root compromise out of your life and that from today you are going to return to living the Christian life in the way that you know God wants you to live it. So do you want to know peace and joy and fulfillment in the Christian life? Do you want to know the Christian life as it's promised to us in God's word? Do you want an end to compromise? Do you want an end to barrenness? Then repent and turn to God and you'll find that he is here, ready to renew you, ready to restore you. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the greatness of your love toward us in Jesus Christ. We want to thank you that there's never a time in our life when we can't get things right again, put things right, when we can't be restored again in our relationship with you. Lord, help us tonight to really face up to where we are and help us to get right again with you. We pray this in Jesus' name.